Greetings and salutations to all our Surf and Sales podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us. It is Richard Harris with my co-host Scott Lease, and we are super excited uh, to be brought to you today by Salesforce Sales Cloud, Lead 411, Gong.io, The Game Changer, and Vidyard. Uh, so if you are taking a look at your sales stack for the rest of this year, please check out our sponsors. We appreciate their support all the time. Uh, with that in mind, I would definitely want to introduce uh, uh, our guest today, which is Mike Wolber. I hope I said your last name there correctly, Mike. He is the CRO at Rent Dynamics, uh, also part of uh, Silicon Slopes. So out in Utah, maybe we'll talk a little bit about what's happening out there in the world. And um, also he's got starting his own podcast. So we'll, we'll dive into all this stuff. But Mike, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a ton, uh, Richard and Scott. And you did, you nailed you nailed the last name. Most people throw in a G at the end for some reason. So thank you for the intro. Sure, no worries. So you'd mentioned, you know, right when we got on that, you know, you recently came out to Utah, right? Is that with the family? Yeah, took on uh, a new role back in uh, early December. And my family and I, we, my wife uh, and our two kids, uh, we just relocated about two months ago to Northern Utah up in Logan, Utah. Got it. And what was the appeal? Just, you know, a new gig, a new job, you have family there? No family. And it's for the first time, neither of us have lived within driving distance of family. So kind of a big deal when your kids are two and four, but I'm an all in type of person. And I think after the, the pandemic and so much virtual, the idea of being in person, collaborating with a growing company of about 130 employees, it was a great opportunity. So we actually didn't even blink at the chance to make the move, even though it's been tons of new as we kind of learn the company as well as the area. That's great. That's really great. What, you know, tell people what, what is Rent Dynamics, right? It's, it's uh, give us the lowdown on that average deal size, sales cycle. Tell us the pain you solve just so people have context of what we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. So we're, we're a vertical specific software company. Uh, we do technology for the apartments industry. Uh, if you're inside of the industry, you're, you'll usually call it multifamily or even prop tech, property technology. But if you're on the outside looking in, uh, we sell to owners and managers of, of real estate portfolios. And so we have a couple different really exciting products uh, that we're selling uh, both to individual communities as well as to the entire portfolio. And for us, uh, kind of a, a loose average deal size would definitely be in the low to mid six figures. And um, in terms of growth, our, our company's been, uh, been around for about 10 years. Uh, and we're really entering, a, I think, the stage where we're going to be shifting the business from really being product-led to go-to-market and sales-led, which was the why behind Rent Dynamics looking to make their first investment into a C-level officer to oversee all of go to market. And so that's where the stars really aligned for me and the founders to strike a deal. And it's been a really fun six months. There's a lot of this story that sounds very familiar, Richard. I don't know if you've been paying attention. Moving to a new state, no family, no friends, two little kids, vertical specific SaaS. Are you paying attention to this story, Richard? I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> Oh, well, let me fill you in. It sounds very similar to what I did about 10 plus years ago or so now. So pretty, all about pretty Scott. Cool. It's always all yeah. about Scott. Yeah. Love it. What's the, what's the biggest difference in the scene in, uh, in Oregon versus the scene in, in Utah so far? 
for you? Yeah. So, so Bend, Bend, Oregon is where I was prior to, I was VP of sales at a company called G5, same industry doing different technology, uh, tripled revenue and doubled headcount in the six years I was there. And Bend was a destination. Uh, we moved there from Portland. My wife and I both left Nike back in 2015 to move to Bend. And um, Bend was, was like the it place, even, even bigger than Portland in a lot of ways. Whereas moving to Utah, you know, Salt Lake City is definitely really popular. St. George is, is definitely a destination. This isn't necessarily like a town that has that destination feel to it in terms of the, the locale and kind of how it's constructed. But I think we're seeing kind of the early signs of it being another destination. So excited to be, you know, probably someone who's going to frustrate locals as we come in with outside uh, money. Oregon is definitely a much hotter market than Utah from a price per foot standpoint. But um, it's different. But at the same time, lots of cool things about it that, that have us excited both uh, personally and professionally. How do you think about managing that in terms of headcount growth and talent? You know, I don't know anything about Northern Utah in, in particular, but, you know, off the top of my head, I think, well, shit, it must be hard to find a couple hundred employees in Northern Utah with startup experience, SaaS sales experience versus Salt Lake City, Portland, even Bend to a lesser degree. Do you think, do you think about that? Does it concern you? And, and how do you, um, how do you get around that if you are in fact a kind of in-person office first type organization? I, I think the last year, the year plus was actually really good for the business in that regard. I think our co-founders and a lot of the um, kind of early stage team that's still in place really grew up a lot, figuratively speaking, and getting comfortable with operating a business through Zoom. And so I think it's going to really force our ability to be a little bit more competitive as we look to recruit. You know, we can pull some levers to incent someone to move here, whether that's through relocation or whatever that might be. But we're also getting to the point where if you're the right fit, like we're, we're comfortable with you being wherever you need to be. And, um, you know, I think making sure that as we scale, especially on the go to market side, really investing for the first time with scale. Uh, we'll probably look to have, you know, kind of a, a quarter rhythm of the business where we get the team together once a quarter to make sure that as we're developing process and developing kind of the three components of the org that I'm really focused on, product knowledge, sales skills, and activity, making sure that the team is together at least once a quarter. Yeah. Good. Talk about those three pillars, right? How did you, you know, you know, there's no, there are very few books on the CRO role, right? Um and even the coaching around it is getting better, but you know, I mean, even two or three years ago, you know, the role was just arriving. How did you figure that piece out? How did you get that vision? Or have you always been that vision leader? I, I have not always been that vision leader. And I, I think, you know, without stroking your guys' egos too much, you know, people like you have played a huge role for me because I'm learning as I'm going. And, and there's no, nothing not, not wrong with saying like me, Scott, not people like you. He said people like me. <laughs> Go ahead. And and uh, I, I think for me, there's a couple of things. So one is I think my time as a, a VP of sales uh, played a huge role in in un understanding you know, the role that sales plays in the greater business. Uh, fortunately, I've had other roles within, you know, go to market, whether that's sales engineer or head of partnerships. So really understanding more broadly about what it looks like to, to win in the eye of the market and in the eye of your customer. 
And I do think that like branding, everything plays a, a big role for me. I've had a lot of success in branding, whether it's my focus area or the things that I, that I think matter most. Like I just talked about with sales skills, activity and product knowledge. I talk about that all the time to my sales team, just to make sure that they're really clear on uh, our expectations as we look to really invest in them and make them super successful. But the, the role of the CRO is, is interesting, Richard. And I think that uh, mentors have played a big role. And in this, in this, you know, first step at it, the first thing I did was go on a listening tour, hardly spoke for the first 30 days while I listened to the teams to understand where the initial focus needed to be within marketing, sales, and account management, smart. which are the three Very teams smart. I lead. Yeah. And it played a big role. And, you know, for me, I spent the first quarter building out marketing and now we're really focusing on sales and um, it's kind of been thing by thing, but so far, so far, so good, but still learning. Yeah. Talk a little bit about um, how you, what do you do on a listening tour? I like that, right? Like, I think we've all heard it. It's a great thing. You know, I've done it. How do you know what you're asking for? What kind of questions do you ask of people? Because I think people would like to know, like that, look, that could be, you could be in your first sales manager role, your first director or VP role, right? And that's, that's a good thing to do. So there were four questions that I asked everyone. I met with about 45 people in my first 30 days. I consulted for the month of December part-time before joining, joining full-time on January 4th. So wow, I use those. Familiar, doesn't it, Scott? Also <laughs> smart. Mike, Mike, Mike is uh, just copying my playbook word for word here. <laughs> and so the, the four questions I asked everyone, I just wrote them down was what's, what's working. Uh, that usually went long. Then what's not working. Uh, what do you need from me or your leadership team? And then what didn't I ask you? And that last one was really interesting because what didn't I ask you really got them to really shine a spotlight on, you know, their history with the business areas that they saw as good or bad or opportunistic. And I really spent a lot of time in data, if I'm being honest, documenting all of that stuff and really trying to find trends. I uh, shared it with a couple of friends uh, who were outside of the business uh, that I consider mentors who were then able to also look at that and then come up with findings. And that's really how I launched into the role full-time in January was using that data to kind of focus on specific areas of the business, making some uh, investments into tools like Gong uh, to make sure that once we started, we were really ready to really jump into a new choreography as a business. That's cool. I wanna, Just out of curiosity, I'd love to hear your contrast of that. Like, you know, did you have four questions that you would ask or you would ask if you took on a CRO role um, just to see if there's any, maybe there's something different, maybe not. Well, in case you can't tell, Richard, Mike is far more polished than I am. Okay? <laughs> and so he he busted those four pillars out. Like, you know, he used, I believe him when he says he had him and he wrote him down. Whatever answer I gave you right now, I would just be winging off the top of my head. I, I don't, I didn't, I don't have four. I don't have, four, I don't have four. I can wing it right now, but you asked the question, like, did I have that? No, I did not have that. So then but, I did, but I did do exactly what Mike did, which is show up and ask questions of everyone and get to know everyone and do this listening tour of sorts, like he said. I mean, I, I spent two weeks essentially in a room with, the, with two of the three founders of Qualia just asking them questions about the title insurance industry and 
the product and what they think works and how these people think. I don't know. I didn't know anything about this kind of industry whatsoever. So before I started making any kind of suggestions, I'm like, I got to learn how everybody here thinks, how everybody in this industry thinks and operates, or I'm going to just look like a jackass. So that, that strategy is, is the right one. And, and a lot of people don't do it. And one of the reasons people don't do it is they feel compelled to be productive straight away and kind of justify their existence and their, and their hiring. And some of that is pressure that we as CROs put on ourselves. And other times it's founders making a mistake saying, Hey, Scott, we just hired you go close some deals. Hey, Mike, you know, we just hired you. You got a big salary. Get these salespeople to be productive. So one of the best things you can do as a sales leader is to establish this boundary and communicate up front. That's like, listen, for the first 30 to 90 days here, don't expect anything fancy to happen. I'm coming in to learn and then I'll start putting some things in place and we'll start building some things. So I, I applaud Mike for, uh, doing it the right way and, and being even more organized than me, which is not that hard to do, but I still apply. <laughs> well, I, I want, Richard, I go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. No, go ahead, Mike. Why, I was just going to say that Richard was, I think, asking kind of like my questions of the business. And, and Scott, I'd, I'd be curious if this was similar for you when you joined Qualia, if I'm pronouncing it right. But I really sought to understand why they wanted to hire the role. Like it was the first time they were hiring a CRO. So it wasn't just like backfilling, inheriting and manipulating a plan. It was a net new hire and it was a new ask to the board, et cetera. And I really wanted to be clear. And it was a huge part of the, I'll call it recruiting cycle of making sure I was clear on why they wanted to bring in a CRO at this stage of growth and what those expectations were of me. Because I think if, if those two had been out of line, it could have easily been a not good fit for me, but I felt like the expectations were really um, clear to a degree, but also there was room for negotiation. And I felt like the um, expectations of output were also really um, healthy and that I could come in and learn the business first without being that bull in a China shop that we've all worked with. The guy that comes in, clears out people, brings in the old guard and, and really tries to make it his own without really learning how to, how to make the business better. What's interesting about that is um, with me going into Qualia, it was actually the opposite. Like it was me trying to explain to them why they needed this particular role and why they needed it now. I, the, the story with me is that I had been on a recruiting tour of sorts. I had done some consulting with them prior um, and I had job offers in various places across the world. Uh, Germany, I had an offer, San Diego, Denver, Austin. Richard knows this. He's nodding his head. Um, and I, I did a sort of second quick round of consulting with, with Qualia. And I was just struck by the progress they'd made. And it was me pitching them saying, listen, why don't you guys just hire me full time? I would rather be here. You're on to something. Here's what I see. So that dynamic was a little bit flipped. And I had to explain to them kind of, why the role would be important right now and what we needed to do and, and what the next one, two, three years, you know, out might look like. So I want to talk to you now about this vertical specific SaaS uh, kind of play because sure. that's what quality was. 
That's what Qualia was. That's what many of the companies I've been advising are in. This is the kind of the thing that I'm the most excited about. Um, so I want to know from you, what is it about vertical SaaS, maybe even define vertical SaaS for people who don't know, vertical specific SaaS. And then what is it about vertical specific SaaS that excites you? So uh, my, my definition of vertical specific SaaS would be rather than having a persona like enterprise salesperson where outreach and gong and all of the companies sell to, uh, you're really going a step deeper and actually identifying a target market in actual industry. And so it, real estate is a super broad um, way to define the vertical that we sell into. Multifamily housing, which is the apartment sector of real estate, is our really defined go-to-market focus. And so that is the vertical that we serve. Uh, we have a few different personas or people that we do sell to and work with, but that would be my definition of it, Scott, is really defining that, that specific industry uh, and tailoring your products and your pitch and your people to be able to best serve them in a way that companies from outside can't necessarily do. And so why is that so exciting to people like you and I? So for me, it's, it's a couple of things. So uh, one of the things that I'm obsessed with when it comes to this vertical specific motion is that your reputation really, really matters because you're selling to a small or smaller group of people. You have routine buyers and companies. And I think the flywheel effect matters deeply in this, in this case and that your customers have to be raving fans or else it is really hard to win in a vertical specific motion. And so I think, you know, you hear about personal branding, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, what people think about you before they've even met you. I think it matters 20 times more in a vertical specific motion because you don't have as wide of a TAM as you would otherwise. And for me, it really makes driving and building and creating business a lot more fun because retention of people and of customers and all of these different things, uh, it's fast paced, but it's also, you're really playing the long game. And I think that really motivates me. I have a question. Do you think that um, the word vertical and industry could be different? Meaning, you know, to your point, you are definitely very specific to an industry, right? Like the real estate industry, but you know, for someone like Gong or Vidyard where they are pitching to salespeople, their vertical is still sales, right? Correct. Um, but, and again, they could be, you know, it could be splitting atoms, but I'm just sort of curious to that. Um, Cause I just didn't see it that way in the vertical world and the way you guys described it, but I can understand. Yeah. I've always used that term habitually. You're the first person who's ever asked me that. And now that you say that, I mean, maybe saying industry specific would be more relevant because my last company, G5, is a real estate focused company. And they would say they serve three verticals, senior living, self-storage, and multifamily, three different sectors of real estate. And so in that regard, you know, the industry versus the vertical. And to your point, I think that does make a lot of sense about gong and sales. So I, I think there's totally room for discussion there. So I have another question on that, which is, or not on that, but you mentioned this word, the flywheel, right? Explain that to people, because I don't, I, I don't think that word is used often enough. Um, and it sounds cool because uh, it hasn't been overused, but I don't know if people know what it means. So what is the flywheel in your mind? And it, and it can be specific to, to your industry slash vertical. Yeah. So the, um, the flywheel is a, is a the, the place that I at least, you know, stole it or curated it came from Brian Halligan, the CEO of HubSpot. 
And he has a video that would be cool to include in the show notes, which is um, the, his keynote presentation from the inbound conference back in 2018. And he talks about this kind of old way of doing business, which is through a funnel, which we still talk about a funnel all the time in our business. And this new way of doing business is the flywheel effect. And so you look at your business and you see clients and, and client satisfaction. And then you look at sales and you look at the, the motion of, of outbound sales and then you look at marketing and how when you get all three of those moving together, this flywheel creates momentum that once you get going, it's really hard to stop a business. And so it's a huge part of why I did this listening tour back when I started was understanding of those three areas, where did I need to put the most focus on first so we could get the motion in place? And I think really understanding where across go to market, you have room for the most opportunity can really help someone in our positions best know where to spend their time in the early days in a new role, let alone playing the long game in any position or with any company. That's cool. So in, let me ask you this question. So you're a CRO, you then have, you know, maybe your CMO reports to you and, you know, or you have a VP of marketing, a VP of sales. You're, you're steering the flywheel, right? Are they then navigating funnels? But of course they touch the flywheel, right? Because they're each components of that flywheel. Exactly. That's exactly how we approach it. So we've got like in our, in our standard board deck and we, we run a quarterly cadence with our board. Um, we're, we're rolling into a flywheel to really anchor the focus for the business, but then specific um, funnels and kind of all the specifics that you need coming out of marketing, CX and sales as well that really feed in so that we can set expectations with investors and our employees, of course, as well on, hey, you're going to feel a focus over the next quarter as we really double down on turning customers into advocates. And account management is really going to feel the focus and the rest of the business is going to be supporting you. And then the next quarter, we're going to master our motion and sales. And you're going to see a lot of focus there on being able to you know, turn prospects into customers swiftly. And so I think that becomes a big part of being able to focus you know, the business, but also bring people along with, with branding, something that they can really latch onto. I want to rewind the tape a little bit, a number of number of years, and, and get into some things that I heard you mention. Um, you worked at Nike, and you, and you were there for a long time. Yeah, uh, can't really imagine many companies different than startups as Nike must be. What was the experience like working at Nike? Good, bad, and ugly versus the world of startups. Yeah, I, uh, I drank all the Kool-Aid for the five years I was there. It was awesome. I, I was recruited uh, out of college like two weeks before graduating. Um, my plan was always to go back to Alaska, which is where I'm, I'm from, and uh, to work my, with my dad in real estate. And that passion for real estate goes way back to watching him succeed up in Alaska. But having the opportunity to join the product creation division on the tech side at Nike, um, was, you know, too good to pass up. And I was able to pay for my own townhome right out of college. It was a, it was a really cool opportunity. And, um, you know, some amazing things happened at Nike for sure. I met my wife early, probably earlier than I ever thought I would. Um, and we, we just celebrated seven years together, uh, this past Monday and, um, thank you. And, um, aside from that, you know, I, I think two really amazing things professionally happened. One is that I saw this 36,000 person business. And from the inside looking in, 
I saw that if you wanted to succeed and if you wanted to make it, you know, there climbing the ranks, like literally, you had to be able to tell a story. Being able to tell compelling stories is what made the great stand out. And I doubled down on learning how to tell stories. I always asked for opportunities to lead team meetings, to present at, you know, company initiatives and things like that. And I had a lot of cool opportunities in my five years to really learn how to not be shy and how to tell a story. The second thing that was motivating to me was seeing that this $40 billion company still had problems and we were implementing technologies to solve them. I implemented Tableau. I implemented Informatica. And along the way, I wanted to go be a problem solver. I wanted to go be the company that could approach the big company and say, yeah, we're small, but look what we can do. And I think, you know, storytelling plus wanting to be a problem solver, I got to go join a B2B company. And so that was really the inflection point um, coupled with when to move to Bend, which was always our goal. Um, and, And really, I think maximizing my five years there, but also feeling like I put the check in the big co and now really enjoying doing it on the, on the smaller but growing scale. I never put the check mark in the big company. Me either. I think I avoided it. I think my biggest- you got, you got closer than me maybe though. I did. I definitely worked for some places with a couple of hundred people, maybe four or five. Yeah. I will say that if I was going to go work at a big, huge company, Nike would be a pretty cool place, I think, to, to try that out. It was super special. I really enjoyed my time there. Yeah, I could, I could see uh-huh. there's several big companies that might have that startup feel, right, um, in, in that regard. But I also think it's, you got to be passionate about the product or the service they have, right? Big time. Um, okay, I, I, I want to I touch on something here that we've never talked about ever in 256 episodes, Richard. Yes. Yeah, I, I think Mike is episode 256. We've never talked about this and nobody ever talks about it. And it happens at every single company, in-office relationship. So yep. you, you said you met your wife at Nike, been together now for seven years, I think you said. So you successfully navigated uh, an in-office relationship. I assume successfully navigated it in terms of your relationship and in terms of your work uh, you know, relationship at, with the company and priorities and all that kind of stuff. How does one pull this off what advice do you have for people um, who are considering this, who are in this? How do you navigate all that? Because, you know, the normal, like, stereotypical response is like, yeah, don't, don't get into any of all that kind of stuff, which everybody loves to say. And then every single company you go to, like, half of the staff are dating each other, right? So, yeah. And nobody ever talks oh, about sales. it. It's like so tough. Nobody ever talks about it. <laughs> It's particularly in sales, okay. like it's crazy in sales because totally. right? there's so much socialization outside the office. Yeah. And liquor. Probably. So we met early. Uh, we met maybe a month in and April is her name. And I mean, she was speaking at a, at a team meeting and she just stood up and smiled this incredibly contagious smile. She was so confident, so well-spoken. I mean, she was the whole package when I, when I first saw her and I'm, I'm 21 at the time. And, um, we took a long time to even become friends, let alone pursuing, um, any form of dating. It was about a year after that, that we went on our first date. So I definitely was like slow and cautious. And I think we both were. And the one like asterisk Scott is that it's all we've ever known. We met in office, we dated in office. We've been together for 11 years. All we've ever known is working together. When we moved to Bend and I joined G5, two months later, guess where she joined? 
And she's now the director of implementation with the team of project managers. And so it's what we know. She followed you from Nike to G5? She, she took her talents to the market, went out and looked at a bunch of companies in Bend. And it was so funny. I like vividly remember it. She's like, babe, I've got three offers. My favorite one is G5. What do we do? And I was wow. like, why don't we just try it again? And much smaller company at Nike, it was easy to steer clear of each other professionally. So it didn't really get in the way. Uh, we'd flirt on WebEx and whatever during the workday, but it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it, it honestly wasn't. Different teams, different um, categories that we supported. Uh, G5, we definitely like, sat on top of each other sometimes. It was a lot different there. But um, I think it's BS when people say that they can work together and not bring work home. And so we definitely bring work home. Like it just is what it is. It's been yeah, part of I would, our- I would imagine. I've never understood yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are lying and they want to sound different when they say that. It's impossible. I mean, we spend more time at work than we do with our families. And so I just think that, you know, we do bring it home, but we have unique perspectives. And I've solved a lot of million dollar problems with my wife because she can actually have a perspective as my wife and a colleague. And for us, it's been really healthy. This is the first time in- a decade that we haven't worked together and it's awesome. But at the same time, we're still trying to solve each other's problems because it's what you do. You, you talk through that stuff with your person. Um, but knowing when to turn it off, I think has been a big thing. Like there are definitely times where it's like, without even saying it, we know we're going to not, not so, focus on that. And that's, that's the hard part, I think. So real, real specifically, like how and when did you, or if did you approach like, HR, your manager, like, what does one do in this situation? Uh, I, I went to my boss, she went to her boss, we had different managers at Nike, and we disclosed it. And they, uh, I don't know if they went to HR or not, they both said that they were going to run it through the ranks and let us know if there were anything like that they needed at Nike. Uh, and this was with different last names and just dating. And come to find out that the director of our department, who's now a senior director of innovation at Nike, uh, she hoped she hoped that we were going to date. So she's all excited. She came to our wedding. She's a good friend now. That's awesome. Um, so I think they were outside looking and like wanting to see this love story come true. Um, and at G5, since I joined first as a sales engineer, uh, we just disclosed it. Same last name. It wasn't a big deal, but we disclosed it from the get-go. And at a smaller company, there was a lot more grace with lacking procedure and, and structure and all that kind of stuff. But we definitely did the right thing at Nike and made it clear uh, pretty early. How, do, how long were you guys dating before you decided to go public, so to speak? Uh, probably like a solid, like a solid six to nine months of keeping it separate. And at, at a certain point, you know, we'd known each other for a year and a half, been together for about six months. Like we both felt pretty certain that this was it. Mm-hmm. And I think once we started getting serious, maybe it was when the L word came out. Um, it, that's when I think we, we, we uh, made it a, a mutual decision to, to share it with at least our managers. Who's, who said the L word first? You were her. I did on uh, St. Patrick's day, 2011. Good for you. How about you, Scott? Yeah. Who said the L word first, you or, or Janet? You know the answer to that. No, I actually, I don't. I could see both of you being pretty fucking stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, no, she, she did. Yeah. yeah. She did. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I'm going to get in so much trouble now. This is gonna I'm sorry. Oh. It's my fault. <laughs> no, no, no. So I, so, and the reason I'm asking, you know, not the L word part, but you know, 
how much added stress did that cause? Or were you guys pretty comfortable? Like to your point, you knew each other for a while before you started dating. So there was a little bit of comfort, but I think that's always a challenge too. It's like, oh my God, what if someone finds out or, you know, those kinds of things. And it sounds like you were in different departments. So maybe it wasn't stressful, but did it add stress? It's funny. I, Nike's campus is in Beaverton, which is just west of Portland, Oregon, and it's sprawling. I mean, there are dozens of buildings, I mean, tens of thousands of employees, literally and figuratively to avoid someone at Nike is very easy. And so I think there was always this like thought that was maybe like harder in the back of my head, like, what if? Oh, it'd be fine. Plenty of people have done it and like, you know, it's been okay. But um, I certainly like I think if I think back and try to be like explicit in like the thought process there were certainly like action reaction thoughts like if we do this like there are there are potential you know reactions of us having to work together and not being together anymore and things like that and I think that's where the like the friendship first for us worked really well um hard to do as adults but um I think you know being thoughtful of of really making sure that we were at least wanting to do it we talked about it a lot before jumping in yeah, no, that's that's good. So I, I, I'm glad to hear it. And I hope people can sort of take some advice from it, too, because we know. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so tell us quick, you know, about your pot. Holy cow, we're almost at time. Um, but tell us about your podcast. Like, what is it? What's it called? What are you focusing on? What are you trying to help others uncover? So real estate and uh, in general, like the, the industry that we focus on has, has oftentimes called itself like a laggard industry, slow to adopt new technology, um, still doing business like it's 1995. And uh, I wanted to have some fun with that, knowing that now that I've been in the space for about seven years, I sell to a customer that wants to maybe be more sophisticated from a technical or strategic approach. I started a podcast called Modern Multifamily. And so I have leaders that are both on the vendor supplier side, like myself, or on the customer operator side, um, come on. And we, we usually decide in advance kind of a topic in our, or an area. And really, we really talk about kind of progressive or just realistic ways that, that, that other people can advance or even just talking about their approach to business. So it's a pretty focused audience. Like I'm definitely creating a podcast for the multifamily industry, but just launched episode 15 last week. I'm talking to current customers, future customers and partners. And it's been, it's been so much fun. I'm really, really enjoying it. And you're, you're utilizing it directly to have to, to impact and help um, your company. This is not like a side project kind of, kind of thing. Like it's, it's a demand gen tool in a way for your group, it, right? I would say that it is uh, like long game. It's definitely going to play a role in building demand. Uh, I'd say my network is bigger than my company's network to start. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I intentionally branded it myself. Like there's no rent dynamics on the podcast just to make sure that from like an authenticity standpoint, uh, it doesn't feel like it's, you know, a company show, but people attach, you guys know, people attach name to company without even thinking about it. So I think we're already seeing some, really positive direct and indirect benefits of Mike running this podcast, releasing an episode each week yeah. and then being at a conference and hearing people be like, Hey, that's the podcast guy. And then it turns into yeah. a, a great conversation. Richard, Richard gets that all the time as he travels around people walk up to him and they're like, Hey, you're that surfer dude guy. Right, Richard. <laughs> yeah. I, I look the part. I look. The yeah. part. <laughs> I love that. People walk around and go, Scott, who let the homeless guy in? <laughs> well, yeah. 
I, I, I got to talk about play the part. I fit the role. Right. Fit the role. So, um, uh, question, um, sort of want to flip it over to you in a second, but want to give a shout out to our sponsors of Lead411Gong.io, uh, Salesforce, SalesCloud, and Vidyard. So please check those folks out. Um, I had another question around your, your podcast piece, which is, how are they finding you? Have you figured out how to market your podcast? Have you figured out, you know, aside from having your own brand, which is great, but how do, how do people find you? Because you are in a niche world, right? Like, I don't know, you know, I think Scott and I are lucky, you know, knock on wood that like, hey, we focus on sales, we focus on salespeople and we built it a little bit through LinkedIn and, you know, our event and that kind of stuff. So it was a little, feels easier, but how do you do it in yeah. a niche market like what you have? So I've learned a lesson and I think this is true. I think you, with like all the algorithms and everything with Twitter and with LinkedIn, I don't think you can promote a podcast enough just based on reach on platforms. And so I'm definitely trying to find the balance with, with promotion because I still talk about, you know, role stuff and business stuff on LinkedIn for sure. I'm way more active there, but promoting has played a big role. Um, I'm also, and this is, takes time, but I'm, I'm sending each guest a, a collection of assets, some spliced videos and excerpts so that they can promote it themselves. And I definitely see huge lift when, when my guests promote the podcast on their own. And then one thing I'm doing because building a list is really hard with podcasting because you don't naturally get email addresses is at the end of my podcast, I ask people to sign up for my newsletter. It's the only call to action that I have modern multifamily um, dot substack. So I'm using substacks free newsletter. And so now I'm up to a couple hundred email addresses that have signed up that I now can reach directly to promote the show. And my only call to action there is if you find value in this newsletter or this podcast, forward it along. And I'm really seeing some really cool dividends there, but um, can't promote it enough in my opinion. And trying to get email addresses has played a big role to really be able to go a little bit deeper with the audience that I'm building slowly but surely. Will you repeat that part about email addresses? So Scott, yeah, you're speaking finally. Richard's. You're speaking Richard's love language right now. <laughs> I can feel In him sales, glaring. You can't help it. You want the address. I can feel him so. glaring at me through the screen right now. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. How can we be help? How can we be helpful to you, Mike? Yeah. So um, this is definitely like my first year of looking outside of just my work to get involved in, in the industry, helping other companies. I've slowly started to dabble in some investing. Um, and I just took on my first advisory role. Uh, I can't announce it quite yet because the company hasn't announced um, that they're entering the multifamily space, but I'm going to play a role in helping them really develop a go-to-market plan to enter multifamily. Um, but Scott, you, you might recall this. We've exchanged a little bit on Twitter, actually. When you're talking to a potential company, about you know whether or not you're a good fit to fractionally help them scale or, or whatever that specific thing might be. I'm finding personally that there's a default to equity as the offer. Um, but then there's an option obviously to just go like, nope, I just want W2 or maybe it's a little bit of both. Whether it's word bar, if you're super specific, what would your coaching be for someone looking to get That's involved with advising? But what's the right comp approach? To me, to me I have point. an opinion, but I'd love to hear from you. Scott, such a good question. Scott's so much better at this than I am. Well, um, it is a good question. And I completely agree that the default is uh, and has always been equity only. Um, there's a lot of challenges and issues there, including how much equity 
And if you're not super educated on the subject, you end up with almost nothing. Um, but a quarter point is pretty standard for a, a strategic advisor who's in very early. It's so 0.25%. Uh, you should negotiate hard on a two-year vest instead of a four-year vest. But here's the thing. You don't have to do equity only. You don't even have to take equity at all if you don't want to. So the best situation, in, in my opinion, is cash plus equity. Then you get the best of both worlds. Um, cash only, depending on who you are and what your situation is, might make the most sense for you. So you don't have to play the lottery, if you will, with the, uh, the equity. Um, and you might make more, honestly, by taking cash only than taking equity. Um, the key is just to craft the story to your earlier point about what you're going to do, how you're going to help, the things you're going to get done, and what that company looks like today versus what it will look like when you're done after X amount of time, right? Um, so my engagements, for example, are six months. So everything I do is a six-month term, cash plus equity, or cash only. If it's cash only, I charge more than if it's cash plus equity. So I give them a little bit of discount on the cash to give me some equity. I very, very rarely do equity only. I have only done equity only when it's been a friend or the ask of me is very, very low touch. Very low touch. Almost like, hey, we just want to stick your name on the, you know, yeah. on, the, on the program kind of, kind of thing. Um, and that has done, that has been how I've built my business. And so I then turn myself into MRR. And as you stack companies on top of each other and each of them are paying you a retainer. So the cash, by the way, should not be hourly. It should be retainer based. Here's how much you're earning every single month. Now I'm able to forecast and build some type of, you know, guaranteed amount of income for myself for at least, you know, six months out. And you end up with these kind of mini cohorts, right? Because a couple people cycle off and then hopefully a couple new people cycle on and you end up in a very in unstable kind of world of consulting and advising. For me, I've I've found a way to make it very stable um, in doing it this way. And this is what I did straight away when I first started doing this stuff. Um, and I remember Richard telling me like, man, you know, nobody, nobody does it, does it that way or, or, or thinks about it like that, you know? And, and I remember he was saying, that's, that's pretty smart, smart way to do it. So now I've been trying to get him to kind of go at it that way. Do you want to talk about it from your your side yeah, of that, house, you know, I've always done the equity thing. And I think I'm, I, you know, I'm way more of a giver, not that Scott's a taker, not, not in a bad way. Um, but I'm much more of the giver. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. And Scott knows how to do the same thing, but in a more slow roll fashion. So, um, and so Scott's been advising me and I've got one or two that are like this. I've got a couple other advisory gigs. And so this year it's been my goal to get a couple more like this. Um, you know, and I also, you know, Scott knows I suffer from this. He said it the other day and I, it really stuck with me and I appreciate it was that, you know, I often don't, aside from thinking that I have, or from having imposter syndrome, I also sometimes don't think I belong there. I think you said something like that the other day, someone was saying, 
something I don't know, but it was. Well, I think I mainly said, like, I don't think you realize how good you are at what that, you do. Yes. And so I, I discount myself too much in lots of situations. Um, I think that's always been my challenge um, in hiring or compensating people. Or originally when I started consulting, I wasn't, you know, I don't think I charged enough and all those kinds of things. So it's, it's part of my growth curve for, for 2021. So that's cool. That's really awesome perspective. I, I, uh, I don't think I could have said it quite as succinctly as you both did, but that balance makes a ton of sense. And, um, yeah, that was, that was the one question I knew I wanted to ask both of you. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. And one that, um, I've been getting asked more and more, yep. you know, so there's, there's something to that. So I have um, a question for you on that, Scott, for you, when you, can you look at a company that comes in and asks you for this? Can you say, you know what, they're not going to pay me money. They don't even have series A yet. Or does that not even affect you? No, that I definitely look at that um, because of what I charge. Mm -hmm. Unless you've raised a Series A, I know straight away I'm going to have problems convincing them on the on the price, and they're going to want to give me equity only, or they're going to skew more equity a particular way. Right. So for me, my ICP is somebody who's raised a large seed round and is about to do an A, or somebody who's already raised an A or maybe a B. Um, because they're flush and they can afford me. So that, that's definitely something that I've learned over the last, you know, couple of years, but really in the last year and a half in particular is to not go too early because you go yeah. too early, you go too early and that's where you're going to run into, Oh God, I didn't think it was going to be that much. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then all they really want is introductions or sell. Oh, they, yeah. They, what they really want is just to pick your brain endlessly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind that as much as they, they said, well, you know, introduce us to all your customers. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I can't introduce everybody to all my customers. Like that's not the, <laughs> yeah. you know, my customers are going to get annoyed with me. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for spending some time with us, Mike. I know you got to get back yeah. to, to your day, man. We really appreciate it. And uh, stay in touch. Let us know if we can ever be helpful to you and, uh, and best of luck. I will for sure. I, I really appreciate the invite. I, I followed both of you right as I joined G5 back in 2015. And uh, the network you've built and the education that you guys put out for free is just so appreciated. And uh, one of these years, I'm going to join you for the big surfing trip too. But I appreciate the invite. Thanks a ton. There we go. Love it, man. Good to catch up with you. All right.